Now please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, the sixth chapter of Ephesians. As we continue to work our way through the book, we come now to chapter six, verses one through nine. Let's together ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and proclamation of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that as you have given to us this word, which is without error in the whole and in the part, by divine inspiration, that now the Holy Spirit will illumine its page and apply it to each heart here. We ask that those who may be among your people this morning as we worship, that those who are here that do not know you, that they would be drawn by the blessed work of the Spirit of God effectually by your grace from their sin, granted repentance and faith so that they also may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And once again, Father, we pray that you will work in ways that are incalculable to us For we know that it's not what happens simply under one sermon, but the cumulative effect of living under the authority of your word and hearing it proclaimed week in and week out. This you use for the sanctification of your people, our growth in grace, individually and as a church. Praise be to your name that we have your word. May we be faithful to expound it and to live according to its truth. For it is your word and your authority over and in our lives. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The Apostle Paul, as you will remember, in the book of Ephesians, starts with the dizzying heights of God's electing grace and this great and grand eternal decree and the wonders of the redemption that we have in Christ and the sealing of the Spirit, this wondrous high-flown theology. And now in the passages we've been reading over these past weeks, he shows us how This wondrous theology applies to everyday living. Theology is always practical, and it applies to our marriages and to the home and to the workplace, as we will see this morning. 
But before we actually begin the exposition of the text, I want to point out something to you in this text that I think is truly wonderful and is very obvious, but sometimes we miss the obvious. And it's this. Paul addresses children. Paul, in this passage, addresses directly children. He expects that they will be present for the reading of this epistle with all of its deep theology in the congregation. And he addresses the whole assembly as saints to the saints who are in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 1. And now as he moves along, this includes the children. Surely our children should be in public worship. Just as soon as they are able to be in public worship, they should be there. It doesn't matter that they will not understand or comprehend everything. They will in time, and it is the environment in which they will grow and they will mature. So Paul addresses children. And now you know also why, very frequently, I will address children directly from the pulpit. I expect them to be here. I see them as a part of the, at least the visible aspect of the church, and I address them accordingly. Children, you belong here. Children, you belong here. Children, the gospel of God's grace is for you. The cross is for you. The resurrection is for you. Children, this gospel that we preach every week is for you. Now we turn to the text directly, and the first thing that we see together is a command. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He uses a Greek word here, hupakuo, that means to hear under. And so we are hearing, that's the word obey. We are hearing under the authority of the word of God and the truth of God. So children, we begin with a call to obey. Now I want you to think with me, children and young people. All human authority is derived. All human authority is delegated. No one has the right to have authority over another human being unless that authority is given by the one who has authority over all of us. All true authority then ultimately points to Jesus Christ. Therefore, children, when we rebel against our parents, we are rebelling against Jesus Christ. Remember that even Jesus, who was God himself, who assumed human nature that even Jesus was submissive to his earthly parents' authority. How much more for us who are sinners who need the authority of our parents in our lives. Now think about this, children. It is for our disobedience that Jesus went to the cross. It is because you and I have sinful hearts that he went to the cross. And it is for our disobedience to our parents as well, our rebellion against authority that... Jesus went to the cross. And so our rebellion against father and mother shows us how sinful we are. Now, children, you do not wish to lift yourself above God and to disobey him, do you? Look upon your rebellion against your parents as a sin for which Christ gave his life on the cross and shed his blood, and so find your forgiveness in Christ, but also learn how to detest the sin that put him on the cross. Now that's your call, to be obedient to your parents, but also the motive for obedience to your parents is found here. Look again at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, 
This is the first commandment with a promise. Your primary motive for obeying your parents must rise above self-interest. It's not simply because it makes things easier for you or for them. It must even rise above natural affection, the love that you have for your parents. God is primarily concerned about our hearts. And so, young man, young lady, give your heart to Jesus every day. Daily, give your heart to the Lord Jesus. Now, that's why Paul adds that you children must obey your parents, he says in verse 1, in the Lord. Your motive must be to obey your parents because of your union with Christ and your love for Christ. There's no substitute here. And so if you're having trouble honoring your parents' authority, have you ever stopped to think that the trouble really is way down deep in my heart? That it shows something about my need of a Savior? If you're having trouble with authority and obeying your parents, do you think that the issue really is your relationship with Jesus Christ? So the preaching of the cross and the forgiveness of the cross is not simply for your parents and for your grandparents, but it is for you. You need Jesus. You need to know him and the cleansing of his precious blood. Children, you are called to be Christians and to live holy lives in Christ. And we love you. Your pastors, your elders, your deacons, your parents, we love you and we want more than anything that you know Christ and that you follow Christ. And so so Paul brings us right back to the authority of Christ in verse 6 when he says, Obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Now what does this mean? It means that God alone is righteous and therefore he alone is the standard for what is right and what is wrong. He determines what is right and what is wrong and he has revealed that in the Bible. And I will say to you children and young people that your life will be utter chaos if you abandon this. It really will. If you abandon God's word and its standard of authority, which teaches us the character of God and his infinite perfections, if you abandon the authority of God's word, then life will be utter chaos for you. So how we need young people who know the Lord, love the Lord, and who are learning to submit their hearts to the authority of Jesus Christ so that they will be people who do what is right and to do right regardless of the consequences. Now, though this is sufficient, God adds a promise. Did you notice here in verse 2? Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And of course, as he references this commandment from the Ten Commandments, he says this is the first commandment. Now, he doesn't mean here the first in order, but it is the first commandment in terms of the priority for our children. He means here it is the only command with promise, but first here means it is the priority because it is the gate to the rest of the commandments for our children. When our children begin to understand this commandment and to live according to it from hearts that are renewed by the grace of the Holy Spirit, then they will begin to see the significance of all of the commandments of God. Hendrickson comments well on this reference to promise in this text, and I want to read to you what he says. 
William Hendrickson says, Paul, by divine inspiration, lifts the promise out of its old theocratic form. He speaks not of living long in the land which God has given you, but of being on earth a long time. The promise that it may be well with you, Deuteronomy 5.16, is, however, retained. When the objection is raised that in spite of this promise, many disobedient children prosper and become very old, while many obedient children die early, the answer is that the principle here expressed, nevertheless, is entirely valid. To be sure, obedience or disobedience to parents is not the only factor that determines a person's span of life, but it is an important factor. Disobedience to godly parents indicates an undisciplined life. It leads to vice and dissipation. This in turn, all other things being equal, shortens life. For example, when a devout father warns his son against the evil of chain smoking, addiction to alcohol, sins pertaining to sex, etc., and the son disregards his counsel, he is following a course that does not, as a rule, lead to a long life on the earth. In addition, it should be borne in mind that though a disobedient child may live on and on and become a a centenarian, as long as he continues in his wickedness, it will not go well with him. He will not have peace. Living as we do in an age in which such matters as self-discipline and respect for authority are frowned upon, it is well to take to heart what is taught here in 6, 2, and 3. Undisciplined children spell Listen to this, undisciplined children spell ruin for the nation, the church, and society. The promise of God to reward obedience still holds. Now I'd say to you, children and young people, that perhaps if you're listening as you should, and I hope that your fathers and mothers will underscore this around the dinner table today, that as you're hearing this, Perhaps it's calling you to Jesus. Perhaps it's showing you that you should go home and get in your room and get upon your knees and cry out to him for redemption, for salvation. Perhaps you should come before your parents and you should say, Dad, Mom, I've been rebellious. Will you forgive me for my rebellious heart and pray for me that I will follow the Lord? And of course, your godly parents will do that. But I want to say something else to children and to youth. This Christianity, some of you may think, is just being poured down my throat. And I wish I could be like this other young person who is in a different kind of home who's allowed to make his own neutral decisions. Neutral decisions, you say? You think anyone with a wicked heart can make a neutral decision? You've heard me mention one of the greatest influences of my life is Cornelius Van Til. Dr. Van Til, one of the great Reformed theologians of the 20th century, I was privileged to know him. He wrote a little pamphlet that I wish all of you would read called, called Why I Believe in God. It's a very, very simple discussion, actually an imaginary discussion between Dr. Van Til as a believer and an unbeliever. And he says in the pamphlet, if you want to say that belief was poured down my throat, I can also retort that unbelief was poured down your throat. And he really makes his case and makes it well. And Dr. Ventil was brought up in the Netherlands. And when he went to school at five years old with his bigger brother, they wore wooden shoes. Uh, Dr. Ventil's brother was called Big Klompa. And Dr. Ventil, well, not doctor at the time, he was five years old, was called Little Klompa. 
and he used to fight with his wooden shoes, and he saw something of his sinful heart. And he would go home, and his father, his godly father, would have family worship at the dinner table every day, reading through the scriptures. And Dr. Van Til said, I really didn't know what a lot of that meant. But I grew up in that atmosphere. I was hearing the word every day. My heart was being challenged by the word of God. And God led me to Jesus, to faith, and to repentance. So you were conditioned says the unbeliever. And Dr. Van Tell says, in effect, I was conditioned. I was conditioned, but so were you. Because God is the all-conditioner. So you see, when I was young, he says, I was conditioned on every side. I could not help believing in God. Now that I'm older, I still cannot help believing in God. I believe in God now because unless I have him as the all-conditioner, life is chaos. Now, my young friend, this is what we call covenant theology around here. You see, children and young people, you are in this church and you are in Christian homes because you are in God's providence, blessed to be there because we do not live in a chance universe, because God is the all-conditioner and because this is His plan for your life. And I want you to see that you have blessings that unbelieving children don't have. You have blessings in this church that many believing children do not have. It's a remarkable place with remarkably wonderful, especially older, mature Christians to help lead us younger ones in our congregation along. His grace to you is something for which you should be thankful. Thankful for your parents, thankful for your church. Many of you have godly school teachers You see, this isn't by chance. This isn't God's providence for you. This is His blessing in your life. And so if someone wants to say, I was conditioned to believe, Dr. Van Til is right. Yes, because God is the all-conditioner. He put me where He wanted me. I heard the Word. He opened my heart. I received grace. And now He says, that's what I want for you as well. What a blessing. Now that's how God addresses, through Paul the Apostle, children in this congregation this morning. Now, secondly, he addresses fathers. He says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers, you have the responsibility, and here's the second point, you have the responsibility of educating your children. Now, first of all, notice that it says fathers. It's not excluding mothers, of course, but it's talking about heads of households. And sometimes there is a household without the father, and this applies to you. But the Apostle Paul is specifically addressing fathers. Fathers, educate your children. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, where do you find that? Isn't verse 4 just talking about discipline in the narrow sense of the word? Well, no. It's talking about the total education of your child. Others may help, but fathers bear the ultimate responsibility for educating their children. Now let's look at this a little more closely. First of all, Paul's underlying assumption in this text is the covenant. Did you ever think about that? That God has promised to work through the generations of families in order to bring children to himself is the great assumption of the passage. Paul addresses his readers that way in chapters 1 and 2 as members of the covenant of grace. 
And he's clearly addressing children as members of the church. And he addresses children and parents on the assumption that in most cases, the Lord is at work savingly in the lives of children so that they can hear and receive the message that we are preaching this morning, that they are not pagan children. The covenant then that God is a God to us and to our children after us, that's why he addresses them with a promise. Now, I was thrilled this last week when uh, David and Linda Netterveld brought to me uh, copies of family Bibles that had been in their family for generations. Now, they're Dutch Bibles, and they're very, very old And they are uh, the translation that would be the Dutch equivalent of our King James Version. One of them belonged to David's great-grandfather. And there was the New Testament. There was a Psalter for singing the Psalms. And there was the Heidelberg Catechism all bound together. And these old Bibles were well, well used. And you know, I had the thought. This is what thrilled me. Here's David, before him, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, undoubtedly before him, others in the Dutch Reformed Church who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, and they passed this down from generation to generation. The Lord continues to open hearts in that family line so that David knows the Lord, his children know the Lord, his grandchildren know the Lord, and here I'm holding his grandfather's Bible, great-grandfather's Bible in my hand thinking, God is a God to us and to our children after us. This indeed was a great encouragement to my heart. And so we are to nurture our children to the point to which most of them will make public profession of faith in Christ. Now fathers, you are to recognize that God's ordinary way of working is through families, through fathers, through mothers and their children. You are not to withhold in instruction from your children until they until they have some conversion experience. You are to believe that in most instances, God is their God from the beginning, and to believe that he's working in their lives from infancy to bring them to himself. The covenant promise is that God is my God and the God of my children, and in view of this, we are to call our children to faith and to instruct them in the gospel of God's sovereign, free grace. And that's why Satan is attacking the family today. Not only fundamental for society, it is, but fundamental because it is God's ordained method of passing down the truth from generation to generation. That's what Psalm 78 was about. It was read by Pastor McDonald this morning. Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just keep your finger here and turn there. Familiar passage, but I think we need to refresh our memories. In Deuteronomy chapter 6. Beginning with verse 4, we have the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then God's command to fathers is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of the house and on your gates. Now granted, this text was written in a particular context, and it's written into a particular setting, and that setting no longer exists. But the principle is still the same, that moms, dads are to teach their children constantly throughout the day, even until you put your children to bed at night. And God has promised that as we live faithfully for Christ and as we work to help our children to understand these things, that His line of election in large measure runs through the covenant line. And that He will save children through this method. So there's no dichotomy between nature and grace. God uses the natural, in this case families, to pass on the heritage of knowing Him. The Lord is supernaturally at work in the Christian family. So who is first and foremost responsible to lead the children to Christ? Fathers, that's what it says. To provide a total covenantal environment of covenantal faithfulness, Seeing that we believe in God and act upon that faith, that's the father's responsibility you are to lead. And in certain cases, the mother's chief responsibility when there is no father in the home. So how? Someone has said, and frankly I don't remember who said it, the very heart of Christian nurture is is this. The very heart of Christian nurture is this. To bring the heart of the child to the heart of of the Savior. So, Father, your responsibility is to bring the heart of the child to the heart of the Savior. And the Apostle Paul in verse 4 puts it this way, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul uses several interesting verbs here. First of all, the, the verb ektrephida, which is translated here and in most English Bibles, bring them up. But that's really not adequate, and I don't know why they do it. Because the word means nourish. It's used in chapter 5, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. It's the very same word translated nourish in 529, used by Paul. Just a few verses later, it should be translated nourish. You're called to nourish your children, to nurture them. Uh, like, uh, like a plant that needs to be guarded, that needs to be protected, that needs, that needs adequate sunshine, that needs to be properly and rightly exposed to the elements, that needs nourishment, that needs care, so that it can grow strong. You are to nourish your children. And then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.4 uses another, another term from the word paideia, that means to instruct, train, and discipline. Instruct, train, discipline. It's broader than that. It's broader than just discipline, but it includes discipline. Because children need limits. Children need direction. Children need guidance. For example, children should not be deciding where they worship. And they should not be telling you where they will go to youth group, or whether they will attend worship or participate in family worship. It's just not a question. That's the father's obligation to lead. And it means especially that when they are small, administering on, on occasion, careful, loving, corporal punishment. 
Now, of course, we do not mean child abuse. We're talking about loving our children. We're talking about nurturing our children. But our culture is beginning to interpret all infliction of physical pain pain in rearing of children as child abuse, and that's not right. If a small child continues to go to the burner after you have told the child no, if you do not slap his little hand in love, that's foolish. And that is not loving your child. In some countries, especially in the West, and the United Nations is all behind this, you know. In some countries, your child could take a drill and drill a hole in your grand piano in your living room and it's illegal to spank him. And so we're bringing up children with no respect for authority and no understanding that there are consequences for our actions. But that's part of paideia. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us and it's painful, right? Let's keep our finger here and turn to Hebrews 12. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, let's begin with verse 3. God draws this analogy between the discipline of an earthly father and his own discipline. He says in Hebrews 12, 3, Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, you have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have not trained it. So our Heavenly Father disciplines us, and we are called to discipline our children. Now back in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul uses a noun, nuthesia, and that means to admonish or to warn, to admonish or to warn. So if you read the opening chapters of Proverbs and see how a father warns his son against sexual sin, that's being nuthetic that is appropriately confrontational. It is admonition. It is warning. Now listen, Dad and Mom. You can see clearly from the Scriptures that you are not your child's pal. You are the child's parents. So what if they don't like it when you tell them no? How else will they learn to respect authority? How else will they learn 
to respect the authority of God's word in their lives and to learn from his discipline if they do not learn from your discipline. So dad, all of this means several things for you. So I'm focused on fathers here right now. Dad, you must become every inch the Lord's, every inch, if you're going to rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you must do so with firmness and gentleness. Firmness and gentleness. Notice how he puts it here in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now that's an encouragement to be gentle. We just sang, of God, no harshness hast thou and no bitterness. The child should know even when he does not admit it. My father loves me and is guiding me for his own, for my own good. Colossians 3.21 puts it this way. Colossians 3.21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So how can you exasperate your children? How can you discourage your children? By ignoring them, by not spending time with them, by not listening to them, by favoritism in the home, by being domineering, by being inconsistent. I think that's the main thing. Saying to your child, here's what you need to hear, here's how you need to live, but you don't do it yourself. And then, fathers, you need to be dependent. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to keep his precepts. Psalm 103, 17. You must depend upon the Lord for this because only God's grace can change the heart of a child or yours or mine. And since you were called upon to educate your children, let me stress that if our children just have some broad, mere Christianity approach to life, that's not adequate. We are a Reformed congregation. We need to carefully inculcate a Reformed consciousness in our children because only the Reformed faith stresses that all of life is to be lived under the glory of God and only the Reformed understanding is able to equip, equip our children with a worldview that point by point challenges what the world will teach them. So start with a catechism. But don't stop there. Continue to learn the Reformed faith and help our children to apply the biblical perspective to all of life. And let me stress this. Fathers, do not, do not miss public and private and family worship. Enough said. I can't stress it enough. But then whether in the home or by leaving the home on Monday morning for work, we are to honor the Lord and our children need to see that we work to God's glory for all of life is under his lordship. So we see a third thing very briefly. You are called to live for Christ in the workplace. Let's read again verses 5 through 9. Slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. 
issue here is slavery in the ancient world, but we'll immediately translate the principles into the workplace. Sinclair Ferguson rightly says, Paul operated under the deep conviction that social and personal conditions were not the primary issues in life. Fellowship with God, freedom from sin, transformation into Christ-likeness, and the advance of the kingdom of God, these were his central concerns. So it's real simple. What kind of employee are you as a professing Christian? Are you characterized by ill will, dishonesty, laziness, or are you temperamental? Or are you characterized by solid, honest work, even if you have a critical boss? Maybe you strive to do your best, but nothing pleases. Slaves were to obey their masters with fear and trembling, it is said here. These are the very words that Paul uses again in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And he says to do so in sincerity, as you would Christ. You have a higher master than your employer. Because verses 6 and 7 teaches us, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, not just when the boss is around, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And this is liberating. You do your work for Christ because work is worship when it is done for Christ. I've told you the story. I'll tell you again. Dr. Ferguson, somewhere in Scotland, had to go frequently to some business office on business. Uh, the gentleman that ran the office was, um, was not a believer. But Dr. Ferguson said, you know, I've noticed something. Every time I come into your office, there's a young lady over here that's working. She's always typing, always filing, always working. And her boss said, oh, her? Yeah, she's a Christian. Now that's the way it ought to be. That, man, I'm hiring a Christian. This is going to be the best worker because he's a believer in Jesus. And I fear it's not often the case. What kind of employer are you? Imagine a master who came to know Christ in the first century AD. His entire household was transformed, including slaves, many of whom now became his brothers. What attitude exudes from your management? Do you threaten? Do you show partiality? You know, you'll give an account as a manager. Do you pay fair wages? Do you give adequate time off. Corporate America doesn't care anything about the family. But do you? Do you not see that you can destroy people and families, which becomes slavery of the worst kind? Do you employ people with grace and look to Christ to whom you will give an account for how you treat them and relate to them? Because abuse of power is a terrible thing. And he says in verse 9, Masters, in this case employers, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So you see, people of God, he takes this great theology. You're elect in Christ, you're saints, you're redeemed by the blood, you're sealed by the Spirit. You're a part of the covenant of grace. And he takes all of this rich theology and he says, if you really understand it, if you really get it, then it's going to show in the way in which you relate to husband and wife and wife to husband, 
And as we saw today, the way in which you relate to your children and the way in which you work. So to conclude it all, it's all determined by the degree to which you are captivated by Christ, isn't it? Every bit of it. You will rear your children in a Christ-like way and live for Christ in the workplace to the degree to which you are captivated by Jesus Christ. And perhaps Kuiper's well-known statement we tend to think of as applicable just to really high-flown things, and we need to see that it applies to things such as the things with which we're dealing this morning. And what is that statement? In the total expanse of human life, there is not one square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not say, that is mine. Fathers, mothers, children, the home, employees, employers, the workplace, that is mine. Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, says that belongs to me. My sermon preparation belongs to Him. Your work belongs to Him. Your life belongs to Him. You are bought with a price. You are not your own. But perhaps even going through these simple, straightforward instructions from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians this morning shows someone that you need a new heart. Perhaps in the way in which you're relating to your family or the way in which you express your attitude in the workplace, it shows you that you have a heart that is far from Christ. And we call you to Jesus Christ. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come to Him and be redeemed. May He give you a new heart. And may that heart progressively grow and be sanctified and be transformed into a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, an employee, an employer that exudes the grace of God in all that you do. May that be true of this pastor. May it be true of this, his congregation. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.